From the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery, I'm Josh Young, and this is As Seen From Here. On today's podcast, the next big thing is really small. Part one. Sredevan and his colleagues made a little machine that is able to cut axons. Because these machines are so small, the axons are actually kind of big compared to the size of the machine. First this. As Seen From Here reaches ophthalmologists in 98 countries, transfers more than half a terabit of podcasts every month, but the potential audience is much larger. Please tell your colleagues about this free resource, Flattening the Ophthalmic World. And while you're at it, let your residents and fellows know about Open Ophthalmology, a free basic science video podcast, already a force in ophthalmic education with 1,800 viewers watching 6,000 video lectures every month. Information wants to be free. Help me give it away. There's a magical world in which objects vanish and instantly reappear elsewhere, where gold is liquid, and where an object's properties are determined by its surface. Where is this bizarre world? Actually, it's the one in which we live. If we look carefully, we can see it and manipulate it to our advantage. But we have to look very, very carefully to see it at all. It is our world, but on the nanoscale. Nanotechnology holds enormous potential for clinical ophthalmology. And while nanotechnology has yet to erupt on the clinical scene, it is to our advantage to learn about it now. And it is our great fortune to have Marco Zarbin teach us. His review of nanotechnology is extensive, enough that I will present it over three podcasts. Today, we hear part one. Let's define our terms. What constitutes nanotechnology? Nanotechnology involves the creation and use of materials and devices at the size scale of of intracellular structures and molecules and involves constructs on the order of less than 100 nanometers, technically, although work that involves structures between 100 and 500, even 1,000 nanometers, often gets reported in the literature as being nanotechnology. And I think it's helpful to get some kind of real-world comparison to have a sense of how small is a nanometer, you know, versus a micron versus a meter. And I think a good way to think about it is that a typical man is 1.6 meters, which is 1.6 billion nanometers tall. A red blood cell, as you know, is is 7 microns wide. That's 7,000 nanometers. And a single strand of DNA, you know, deoxyribonucleic acid, is 2 nanometers wide. At the nanoscale, at the scale, structures are, are not just miniature version of their macro-sized counterparts. Can I get you to talk about the special properties that nanoscale materials acquire by, by virtue of their scale? Yes, this is, for me, the most fascinating thing, and all of this was pointed out by Richard Feynman in 1959. Uh, at, at the nano level, materials acquire properties that seem very surprising, but they're completely predictable based on the principles of quantum physics. 
And some standard examples would be that carbon becomes stronger than steel, gold melts at room temperature, aluminum becomes highly explosive. Um, when we think of mechanical systems in, in the macro world, uh, weight and inertia are very important. Um, but, in, but in the nano world, weight and inertia are relatively unimportant uh, because everything is so tiny. Uh, and in fact, the strength of a given material is proportionately greater as its size diminishes. Um, another sort of surprising thing is that lubrication isn't needed if, if your machine is small enough because heat loss is so rapid uh, due to the very large surface area to volume ratio, which is typical of nanomachines. Um, and Feynman pointed out that one of the consequences of this is that uh, rapid heat loss would prevent gasoline from exploding, and he thought it would make an internal combustion engine impossible on the nanoscale. Um, another uh, sort of a reverse issue, something where the nanoscale has problems that we don't experience in the macro world, is that you, would, you might uh, expect that parts of nanomachines would stick to each other because of van der Waals forces. Um, the, uh, another funny thing is that if you're working on the scale of atoms, uh, you don't need uh, electrical wiring. Uh, you could use quantized energy levels to do energy transfer, just using um, the, the principles we all learned in college chemistry. Um, the a problem with, with nanocircuits, though, is that the, the smaller the devices get, the more the noise-to-signal ratio becomes. And uh, there are some technical, potentially technical solutions available to reduce the, the problem of signal-to-noise ratio in these systems. Um, and in fact, those solutions, which involve something called stack graphene sheets, might make it possible to develop um, chips uh, or the equivalent of chips that are smaller than even today's conventional silicone-based computer chips. Um, in general, an important property of nanomaterials is that they are surface-rich objects in relation to their volume. And uh, as um, I'm sure you know, um, if, you, if you have, a, uh, say, a baseball filled with uh, enzymes that are surface active, only a small fraction of those enzymes is going to actually be active because only a small fraction is on the surface. But if you go from having a baseball to a pea, then a much larger fraction of the enzymes is surface active. And in fact, a general problem um, that needs to be confronted when you're dealing with nanomaterials is that the surface area is completely occupied with stuff. So you have very little unutilized real estate if you want to you know, add DNA to the surface or a, a, some kind of a signal. On the same theme of trying to expand the real estate on the surface of these very small particles, what are nanoseria particles and, and how are they used? Uh, nanoseria particles are um, vacancy-engineered mixed-valence state cerium oxide nanoparticles. And uh, the, uh, what happens is that an alteration uh, in the oxidation state of cerium oxide uh, creates defects in its lattice structure by the loss of oxygens or its electrons. You know, a crystal is made of a, a set of atoms arranged in a particular way, and the, the lattice structure of that crystal uh, refers to the arrangement of the different points of the crystal in three dimensions. And in fact, um, in, in a crystal that has a very regular structure, 
uh, you could actually think of the points of the lattice structure as being like tiny little boxes called unit cells, and they fill the space of this lattice. So the crystal structure of a material or the arrangement of atoms within a, a given type of crystal structure um, is, uh, is called its unit cell. Um, so these unit cells are stacked in three dimensions, and, and they make up the crystal. And you can describe the, the, uh, the unit cell by talking about the length of the edges and the angles between the edges, that sort of thing, stuff that we, we learned in college chemistry, basically. As the size of, of uh, these cerium oxide particles decreases, they demonstrate more uh, oxygen vacancies in their crystal structure. And um, one of the consequences of that is that they become great uh, scavengers of reactive oxygen intermediates. Um, and and uh, as, as you know, uh, Chen and colleagues recognized this, and they used nanoceria particles to act as um, scavengers of reactive oxygen, oxygen intermediates and showed that you could prevent retinal degeneration in the light damage model using nanoceria particles. So, and it, so it turns out that these vacancy-engineered nanoceria particles could turn out to be very effective treatments for other diseases where we think oxidative damage is an important part of the disease progression, like macular degeneration or diabetic retinopathy or uh, even diseases like retinitis pigmentosa. You discuss an axon surgery platform. What is it? Well, and I talk about an axon surgery platform, which is work that's been done by Stradivan and his colleagues. He's based at UCSF um, it, to try to talk about uh, nanomachines, because I think they're an, an illustration of what nanomachines uh, might be like. You can use the same technology that's used to manufacture computer chips to make little machines and pieces of machines that you can assemble using tiny little wrenches and forceps made with the very same technology. Uh, now, uh, Sredevan and his colleagues made a little machine that is able to cut axons. It might seem sort of trivial, but actually, um, because these, these machines are so small, uh, the axons are actually kind of big compared to the size of the machine. Uh, the, the axon cutting machine uh, is about uh, a millimeter uh, cubed in size. And it, it's the, the one that he's published on uh, has, I think, uh, 16 different parts that, that you can assemble. And the cutting part of it is a silicone nitride knife that has a 20 nanometer radius of curvature. So you can see through this little knife and the, the radius of curvature means that the point of the knife is a, almost the size of a microtubule. And it turns out that you can make these very clean cuts in axons, and then you can, um, using a process called uh, dielectrophoresis, mobilize the cut ends of the axons together where they spontaneously fuse, or you can make them fuse using a process called electro axon electrofusion. Now, dielectrophoresis is a well-established way of um, moving cells around. What, what you do is you make an asymmetric electrical field, and then uh, if, if uh, the, the elements in the field have charges on the surface, you can make the elements move. Um, 
and we use this for cell sorting machines. The idea of fusing the, the cut ends of the membrane together with electrofusion is actually a process that's used uh, to help make uh, hybridoma cells and to, uh, say, fuse the nucleus of a, of, uh, um, a sheep with the egg cell so that you can clone sheep like Dolly. So the technology to fuse the axons is, is actually already there. Um, the, I think the, the nanomachine, uh, the axon cutting nanomachine, uh, you know, isn't ready for clinical use uh, because right now, it, it, at least when Dr. Shredderman most recently published this, it, it took about 20 seconds to cut and reapproximate one axon. And by the way, he did demonstrate that you get functional recovery of that axon through a variety of techniques. And of course, if you want to do something like re-anastomose the optic nerve, you've got you know maybe approximately a million axons. So um, there, there's a there's a lot of work to be done to bring this thing into clinical reality. But my point for ophthalmologists is that uh, if there's any operating platform in which you can bring uh, tiny uh, equipment at online fast, it would be ophthalmology because we already are used to working in a uh, microscopic operating theater. But when you go to the nano level, you, you need to solve certain unique problems. For example, you need to have very high resolution microscopy because you need to be able to not only see the target tissue, you need to be able to see your instruments. And, and in addition to that, uh, sources of motion artifact like the patient breathing become very important because they'll take the object of interest in and out of focus. Um, but there are actually ways that you can imagine dealing with that using the technology of missile guidance systems to keep you in focus and using the uh, micro manipulators that are already in place for robotic surgery uh, to deal with the issue of the human tremor, you know, which is at least 50 microns in amplitude, um, which is huge when you're thinking about working on the nanoscale. Plus, um, once you're really truly down to the to the nanoscale and, and you're working uh, with structures that are sub visible light uh, wavelength uh, then then you know then then there's then there's no question of seeing them i mean that's 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 not something that's 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 physically possible well they they diffract light so if you think about stuff like nomarski optics you because of the influence they have on light you you might be able to imagine ways to see them indirectly if not directly uh, but you're right. We can't we can't swing a transmission electron microscope into the vitreous cavity. I mean, we'll we'll need to be more clever about that. What is a colloidal carrier, and what does it have to do with diffusion barriers? Well, a colloid is is a substance that's microscopically dispersed within another substance. So um, there would be the the dispersion medium, um, and then there'd be the dispersed phase. So uh, maybe an example of that would be liposomes, where you have little tiny lipid micelles dispersed in a, in a polar liquid. And the reason that colloids help with diffusion barriers is that um, you can take something that uh, uh, you can essentially solubilize something that otherwise would be insoluble. So um, that's why um, nanoparticles act like colloidal carrier systems. So if you, if you take, for example, a dendromer, which has a, a hollow core, you can hide, so to speak, a hydrophobic molecule in the core 
uh, and surrounding this hydrophobic molecule are all the polar groups of the dendromer. And so essentially you make it water-soluble. Typically, only like less than 5% of topically administered medicines are biologically available because of limited ocular penetration and rapid clearance, say from the aqueous humor. Now, if you, if you take a, a uh, structure like a dendromer, um, which is you know, a highly branched polymer with precisely controllable scaffolding and nanocontainer properties, and, and you can actually uh, change the number of terminal groups on it, change its polarity, that sort of thing. If, if, if uh, we take dendromers, because they have surface functional groups, um, they, as well as this void space, um, where you can hide your your uh, therapeutic modality, um, they can serve as delivery vehicles um, for for molecules like carboplatin. And in fact, um, there's been some interesting work on gatafloxacin uh, using dendromers. Uh, I, I'm not probably saying the investigator's name correctly. Uh, Duraj, D-U-R-A-I-R-A-G is how you spell it. He um, enhanced gatafloxacin solub- solubility. Uh, and delivering to the interior and posterior segment using dendromers. And um, it's very interesting. He, he, using this approach, he was able to make it so that a single dose of gatafloxacin gives sustained aqueous levels uh, for over the half-life of nine hours, which would allow you to, to use that medication at once daily dosing. And if you did multiple uh, gatafloxacin uh, dendromer uh, drops, you can actually get therapeutic levels in the vitreous humor for 12 hours. So um, you, you make it so that you get more drug in, and you can make it so that it sticks around longer uh, with the use of dendromers as delivery systems. You describe nanodevices that incorporate DNA. What is a polyplex? It's a compacted DNA particle. That's the way to think about it. So... Um, what you if you if you take uh, you know DNA is negatively charged so if you have a cationic polymer it'll bind to negatively charged DNA or RNA and it condenses it into particles the, the DNA into particles that are you know several hundred nanometers in diameter and this compacted DNA particle uh, actually is protected relatively speaking uh, from um, enzymes that would normally degrade the DNA. And it also can penetrate the, the cell membrane and the nuclear envelope to get into the, the target cell so that you can induce new gene expression. And the, and the beauty of it is that um, there's no risk of uh, carcinogenicity, you know, as there could be with some types of viral transfection. Um, the, the stability of gene expression may not be as good in all cases as if you do viral transfection. Uh, and the size of the genes that you can get into a cell may not be as big uh, as you can get with some types of viral transfection. Uh, but as you know, uh, there's, there's now already uh, published work showing that you can treat retinal degenerative disease doing gene delivery using a compacted DNA particle in which they take a 30-mer lysine peptide that's uh, connected to polyethylene glycol and this work was done by Kai and a woman named Wuna Nash. Um, and they have very convincing evidence showing that they protect uh, these um, mice that have um, a mutation in the peripheran gene um, 
that is actually present in some people that have retinitis pigmentosa. Uh, they, pre- they prevent those animals, uh, relatively speaking, from getting retinal degeneration, at least uh, at a 120-day follow-up period. We'll end our interview here today and pick it up at this point next time. Marco Zarbin is the Alphonse Sinati Lion's Eye Research Professor and Chair of the Institute of Ophthalmology and Visual Science at the New Jersey Medical School, University of Medicine and Dentistry of New Jersey in Newark, New Jersey. His paper, Nanomedicine and Ophthalmology, The New Frontier, appears in the August 2010 issue of the American Journal of Ophthalmology. Ask questions of Dr. Zarbin or any of our previous guests, or make a comment about any of the topics we've discussed. These interviews are meant to be the start of a conversation in which you participate. Write to me with your questions or comments at jyoungmd at gmail.com. As Seen From Here is a production of the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery. Be a part of the next podcast. I'm Josh Young.